0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spantrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Purple People of the Lafayette Morehouse. A seemingly quiet community that has been living in Northern California since 1968 and teaching classes like The Fundamentals of Sensuality and Expansion of Sexual Potential, or simply just Shazam. This cult was led by a man named Victor Barranco. He was a charismatic leader who, once upon a time, used to be a used car salesman and peddled phony jewelry and was even rumored to make collections for the mob.
1: one drinking the purple Kool-Aid. How do we define a cult? Usually the term describes a social group that is defined by its practices of unusual religious, spiritual, or philosophical beliefs. It's also common that it revolves around a single personality,
0: object, or goal. Cult, totalist type, a group or movement exhibiting a great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person, idea, or thing, or employing unethical, manipulative techniques of persuasion and control. Ergo, isolation from former friends and family, use of special methods, Methods to heighten suggestibility and subservience, powerful group pressures, information management, suspension of individuality or critical judgment, promotion of total dependency on the group, and fear of leaving it. Designed to advance the goals of the group's leader to the actual or possible detriment of the members, their families, and the community. The concept of a cult as a
1: sociological classification, however, was introduced in 1932 by American sociologist Howard P. Becker as an expansion of German theological. Ernst Troll's church sect
0: typology. (laughs) Dear God. (laughs) That is a tongue twister and a half. German theologian Ernst Troll's church sect. Oh, fuck. German theologian Ernst Ernst Troll's church sect typology. You might as it's you know what it feels like. It's like the verbal equivalent of like going down slope like a ski slope. You know, you're like schrammler <laughs> <Wow. laughs> Ernst Troll Church Sect Typology. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that you know that makes me like you know how in Men in Black when the cockroach guy is like water with sugar and sugar. sugar water. That's that uh, that's what it makes me do it like makes my chin slam into my clavicle trying to say, German theologian Erz Trunts church sect typology. Trolltsch's aim was to distinguish
1: between the three main types of religious behavior: churchly, sectarian, and mystical. In a later study, Robin's 1988 review of recent sociological contributions to the study of cults identifies four definitional perspectives. One, cults as dangerous authoritarian groups, two, cults as culturally innovative or transcultural groups, Three, cults as loosely structured proto-religions. And four, Stark and Bainbridge's 1985 subtopology that distinguishes among audience cults. Members seek to receive information, for example, through a lecture or tape series. Client cults, members seek some specific benefit, for example, psychotherapy, spiritual guidance, etc. These classifications have a much broader range than previously thought, and over time, cults have evolved and become even more segregated into smaller groups and classifications. Doomsday, destructive,
0: political, polygamist, racist, and terrorist. Look, all I gotta say is, like, um, I don't know that the polygamist stuff and, like, Aum Shinrikyo are on the same level. You know what I mean? Like, it's good we have these classifications. Now, are polygamist cults and religious cults that, like, terrorize women and bind them to men objectively evil and horrible... Yes. I don't know that it's the same as like mass producing tanks and trying to start nuclear Armageddon and committing terrorist acts where they're murdering thousands of people in broad daylight.
1: Yeah, we got to have we got to have some nuance to these cult classifications. And also like, yeah, like, you know, obviously the, you know, cult cults because the interesting thing is, is like, for instance, Jonestown originally that cult started out as an anti-racist social justice group. So obviously, like something that is like on paper good can turn into, you know, not even a, it's not a mass suicide. It's a mass
0: murder. Yeah. Isn't it weird how that stuff kind of gets, you know, perverted and 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 kind of uh, eats its own tail at a certain point? Like, I find that a lot with like a bunch of my former punk friends from uh, uh, Arizona, you know, because there was a you know sizable punk scene there or whatever. And I knew a bunch of kids in that scene and I was in that scene for a minute. And the like the weird pipeline from punk or horror punk or hardcore kid who like has a standard bearer and a code of morals and like believes in trying to do the right thing. The the pipeline from that to like Republican cop is is weird. It just happens where like as people get older because they have that identity of like I understand how the world works. They become really rigid and then that they become so liberal that they come back around to conservative, you know. Like, it's really strange. Or even, like, you know, in, in the Straight Edge community with, like, Friend Stand United. Like, if anybody doesn't know, friends Stand United was, like, a literal gang of f- former Straight Edge kids who would, like, go around and, like, beat up drug dealers and steal their drugs. And, like, it's so weird. It's so... And then they turn into, like, they didn't do some nice things. They did some really bad stuff, uh, which is so strange of just, like, it starts out as, yeah, I don't know if drinking is for me. And then it gets solidified into like a moral code and identity. And then it becomes not only is it not for me, but it shouldn't be for you. And then it's like, it shouldn't be for anybody. Let's go out here and fucking like murder these drug dealers. Like, this is so weird.
1: Yeah. Or like, or like, uh, you know, like militant atheism where like when I was in high school, there was this guy named David and he was.
0: Dude, I'm right here.
1: Yeah. There was a back when you went by David. Uh, you you had your midlife crisis and started going by dave way early
0: yeah yeah when i had my when i had my 15 year old crisis or whatever and i was like nope it's davy boy now yeah my 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 dad had his midlife
1: crisis and started going by dave in his like mid to late 40s you did it at
0: 15 i mean look man it, we all we all look if the worst that's had thing to happen to your dad is he was like yeah i don't really like this name like all right whatever go by a different name who cares i'll just just for the record when you switch to going by david from andrew that's gonna be hard for me it's gonna be hard for me to to process that but you know what i accept you and i'm going to acknowledge and respect that you want to be called david
1: you mean spavid spavid
0: right spavid sorry spavid
1: indeed it's gonna happen tomorrow uh tomorrow next week's episode i'm spavid spice uh the yeah there's there's this there was this guy that was totally you in high school. He was an older guy and he was uh, the boyfriend for a while. He was the boyfriend of my friend's older sister. And they, uh, but ultimately he was like this guy and my, my uh, everybody thought he was so cool. And he was like, I was, when I was like a freshman, he was like a senior or something like that. And he was like this particular style of militant atheist where he would like just like carry around like a copy of the Bible and like rip pages out of it, and then like he would just like go into churches and try to debate the pastor during uh, a a uh, uh, whatever what, are, what ceremonies what, whatever the fuck the, what are, what are those called he would just go in there and like try to debate them during a sermon, and everyone thought that was like the coolest thing ever. And I was just like, that's, that's annoying. Like
0: Sunday morning, like Sunday morning. Yeah. He
1: was just, he would just like, he would just like go in there and try to debate them. He was just like, and he was like, that was his whole brand was that he was just like a fucking, I'm a fucking atheist Prove to me that God exists. And like, I don't believe in God. I I am an atheist or whatever agnostic or whatever. I've never really thought, thought about it that thoroughly. All I know is I don't believe in God, but I, that's annoying to me. Like, that's not cool.
0: That's, that's, ob, that's obnoxious. It's really cringy. Yeah. Like, leave these poor people alone. They're just trying to get through the day. It works for them. Who gives a shit? Yeah. Nobody
1: asked you to do that. Nobody needs you to do that. You're not accomplishing anything other than just like stroking your own weird ego.
0: Making, making, you know, making a bunch of uh, poor people just uncomfortable for 20 minutes as you go like, prove to me, prove. And also I think that there's like, similarly, there's a
1: pipeline of like people I think there's a lot of like really hardcore atheists in like high school who grew up and they just turn into like ultra religious, like, like, like fundamentalist people, because it's like, it's not about the actual belief. It's about this weird, like superiority complex over other people, which I think was to tie it back was that was the, the, the thing with Jonestown was that it wasn't the whole thing was like, because the thing about Jim Jones is like, he started like doing this weird thing as he got, crazier and crazier and more drunk with power and more like in this idea of being this God, he started doing this weird minstrel act where I don't know if you've heard recordings of Jim Jones, but the way he would talk later on is like, he was like trying to talk like some like jazz 1930s person. He's
0: like doing Amos
1: and Andy. Yeah. I I don't want to, I don't want to like try to recreate it, but like if you listen to recordings, As he got like crazier, he started doing this more and more of this weird minstrel performance. But the reason for it is because it wasn't that they genuinely had some belief in like solving racial tensions or being about anti-racism or whatever. It's that he just had like a God complex that he could be like the white savior, which clearly was tied to some weird, like Quentin Tarantino. I wish I was black thing. And as he got crazier, the veneer of like, I'm just running an anti-racist organization slipped away. And then it just became like, oh, you're just like a fucking maniacal maniac who just has this weird fixation on a white savior trope.
0: He's the reverse Manson because Manson was the opposite, right? You know, he was like weird white savior in the supremacist way.
1: Yeah, he was su- super white supremacist and just his whole the whole cult was pre was the whole cult was surrounded by the idea that there was going to be a race war and that, like, black people were going to rise up and kill white people, so they had to, like, build a stronghold so that they could survive or something. Because these have high implications of psychological manipulation, it has been taught that thought reform was an implication of a cult. However, as many similarities as they might have, This is not always the case, and we must look at the destructive nature that the group may cause. What is the impact of its members in society? It seems nowadays that you can't escape the salacious headlines online, or the almost daily Netflix, Max, or Hulu docs about sex cults gone awry. In HBO's Nexium documentary, The Vow, a seemingly sadder and wiser former member says... Nobody joins a cult. Nobody. They join a good thing and then they realize they were fucked. Keith Rainier, the leader of Nexium, told the women that the privileges of their gender had weakened them, turned them into prideful quote princesses, and that in order to be freed from the prison of their mewling femininity, they needed to submit to a program of discipline and suffering. Yeah, but to be fair, like that's what I that's what I tell you.
0: That's true. And it works. Yeah, I mean it's your life is better. Tell me Tell me. I'm wrong. Is this where I'm supposed to start singing the hymns of the Church of Spapa Spicy? Because I know them. Hand Dave's Tale. <laughs> it's just a shot-for-shot shot remake, but with my face deep-faked onto everyone's head. <laughs> no one wants this.
1: Handmaid's Tale, cross, being John Malkovich. Victor Barranco, much like Keith Rainier, had a similar style according to an article from Rolling Stone. This was a first-hand account of reporter Robin Green, who spent some time taking classes at the Lafayette Moore House in 1971. Victor Barranco was born to Wilbert Barranco, a black father, and a Jewish mother in 1934. His parents were well-known musicians in Oakland, California. Their marriage lasted 51 years, but according to Victor, it was completely miserable and they were divorced twice. In Victor's younger years, he said he was a common, quote, street thug. In his own words from Rolling Stone, A hustler is what
0: I was. Do you guys know what a hustler is? Well, a hustler is what I was. <laughs> just you, you saying this, but just reading it like that.
1: <laughs> a hustler is what I was. <laughs> do you guys know what a hustler is?
0: <laughs> Boy, howdy was I one. I'm, I'm not about to sit over here and do some Jim Jones weird Ebonics no, bullshit. Of, co-
1: of course, of course, but the alternative is hilarious.
0: <laughs> it's like the Pimp
1: My Ride episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. These pimp mobiles? I pushed phony rings and watches, the whole thing. Good-looking jewelry that wasn't worth anything. Like I'd pretend to be a truck driver with an overload of goods, or I had an engagement ring set, and my girl decided to marry somebody else. And I'd be crying the blues in a bar, after the time when the jewelry stores were closed, of course. I owned a store that dealt with sailors on Mason Street, selling with diamond engagement sets and they didn't even know a girl. They were 17 from Iowa or someplace and had never seen big water before. I wouldn't even give them a diamond. It was such an incredible hustle. We'd guarantee the thing was genuine, but what it was was a chip, a 10 point chip in a sparkle setting. And it looked big. It was worth maybe $8. The box that the ring was in cost me a buck. I made a lot of money, but her, Susie, his first wife, father was right. I was a bum, and so I decided to go straight. All right, we gotta we gotta take a look at this guy. So there
1: aren't actually any pictures in the script, but we gotta take a look at this guy here. So, th- so this is Victor Baranko.
0: Oh my God, Victor Baranko looks like <laughs> looks like a cross between Ben Stiller in what the fuck is the name of that movie? Victor Barranco looks like a cross between Ben Stiller in the Royal Tenenbaums and uh, Gene Hackman in the Royal Tenenbaums. He does. <laughs> he, he really does. The photo we're looking at here, he's he's sitting crisscross applesauce in some blankets, and he's wearing an orange tracksuit. suit. He's uh, a little heavy set. He's got a mustache, bushy eyebrows, and uh, black hair.
1: Victor Barranco looks like he owned a massive chain of fast food pizzerias in the Midwest throughout the seventies and eighties. And his one little touch that he insisted on is every pie, no matter what it was, no matter what you ordered, every pie had a single sliced olive in the center. And he, and he freaked out if he ever caught anybody, not putting the single sliced olive in the center and every, in every location throughout the Midwest, people always were just like, I don't want the olive on them. That's weird. Like, I got I I got pineapple on um, like it doesn't go with it at all and they'd be like we have to do it like literally if we don't put the olive there he like thinks that it's this like trademark touch and like it's what defines the restaurant if we if we don't put it on there he'll literally fire us and they're just like okay fine
0: Victor Barranco looks like the type of guy that owns a restaurant and comes into work every day and tries to make a catchphrase happen you know he walks in and he's like Hey, everybody. And everyone just kind of goes, hey. And he's like, fuck. And then he comes in the next day and he's like, how you doing? And everyone's like, hey. He's like, god damn it. The next day, he's like, it's purple season. <laughs> what does that mean, Victor? I don't know. I just thought it'd be something fun to say. What do you think? It's my new catchphrase. It's purple season. We're going to rebrand the restaurant to be purple people eaters. Thoughts? uh it's better than the olive idea yeah he uh he looks like victor baronco looks like a cross between mario from super mario brothers and oh no you know what he looks like victor Bronco looks like if ron jeremy was cast to play a retired mario from the super marios uh super mario brothers
1: yeah he's he's like the mario from like a weird 70s porn mario well he looks exactly the way i thought he would look that's all I got. That's all I got to say. From there, he got a job as a manager of a drive-in in Berkeley, his hometown.
0: It paid the magnificent sum of $75 a week. I was used to tipping a 100 I did that for a while, and then I said, hey, this is ridiculous. I had a few mafia connections, and I went to one of those guys and said, hey, they got me washing dishes. And Jerry said, you can come work for me. He got me a job that paid two bills a week. And every two months, you go get your two grand bonus. Susie had begun to feel the pinch of making $75 a week. Dig? She was softening up. Although it doesn't make any sense that he has like a New York accent
1: because he's from Oakland, California. I know. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. (laughs) He had become a bookie. And after that, a washing machine salesman. He continues on
0: basically to talk about how much of a renaissance man he is. I've done everything there is to do. I've been a maitre d' in a fine restaurant used to be a used car salesman i've won cruises for being a top refrigerator salesman and i've been a peddler of phony jewelry i've flown people to las vegas to gamble some of the great people in the world mort stahl francis Fay, christine jorgensen they know me they know me by name i have a wonderful wife two perfect children and a thunderbird i've traveled to los angeles reno hawaii mexico and now i've solved the biggest logic problem of all
1: yeah there's there's, that's another interesting thing this i feel like there's like just based on so many cult stories or cult leader stories of how they got to where they got and like the stuff that they did and the fact that they're all kind of these like sort of tour people who did a bunch of odd jobs and <clears throat> they made money by just going around just kind of, you know, schmoozing and doing jobs like salesmen. There's like an interesting pipeline there as well, where you have these people who have this sort of like natural gift of gab already. So they're already just charismatic or just good at talking and convincing people to do stuff. They naturally acquiesce into jobs that play to their strengths. So they'll do door-to-door salesman jobs and used car salesman jobs and, uh, you know, just sales in general. They start to learn techniques for how to do those jobs more effectively. Uh, Whether it's like on the job experience or maybe they work with a mentor who kind of teaches them some sales techniques or they're, you know, the company that they're working for has like manuals and techniques to use. And then they start to like think about that and they're just like, hmm, I wonder if I could use these techniques to like say like instead of like getting some 40 year old housewife to buy me to buy a refrigerator. Instead, get like some girl to like have sex with me, and then it like and then it escalates. And like, I wonder if like okay, like that worked, definitely worked. I wonder in uh, one girl, that's fine, that's good, all good. But what if I could get like fifty girls to have sex with me at the same time, and then it just and then it becomes a cult.
0: I mean, you're you're not wrong, bro. That's definitely where it starts. Like it, it a hundred percent. All of these fucking situations, even Om Shinrikyo, where he's like. This blind guy who fakes a religious awakening and pretends to go, you know, across the world to seek spiritual enlightenment. At the root core of that, he's just like, but what if I like fucked more?
1: Yep. It's all cults. The only thing I don't get about Nexium is that Keith Renier guy. He's like not charismatic. And the stuff he says doesn't make any sense.
0: I don't, how did he, I don't know how he did that. I mean, I think at a certain point, personal confidence is just like the weird, it's just a weird thing. Like, even if you have like a charisma level of zero, if you just say it confidently enough, people are like, oh, yeah, okay. Or a certain percentage of people are just like, oh, yeah, all right.
1: Yeah, the, the, the Allison Max of the world, or is that her name? Yeah. The Allison Max of the world will just like fucking
0: crumble to pieces and start weeping and then just throw away their entire lives. The one true Jimmy Olsen. Now she's just in a fucking, she's in prison for being in a sex cult. In
1: 1968, he opened the first More House in Oakland, buying up some very run-down, cheap Victorian houses and started up the Institute of Human Abilities, Inc. While he and his first wife and children lived in a very nice house in Lafayette, he would populate these new houses with young hippies, most of whom had just gotten into town and had nowhere else to go. They would fix up these dilapidated houses for room and board, so his investments would appreciate and he didn't have to lift a finger. He was just a landlord. He was just a fucking real estate mogul. By 1971, there were 16 houses owned by the Morehouse community, six on a dead end street in Oakland alone, ten more in Lafayette, San Francisco, San Jose, Los Angeles, Hawaii, and four more in the works. Over 160 residents were now living in these houses and all paying 200 a month rent to Victor. 200 a month? Fuck! I'll move in. I'm I'm down. I'm 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 in. I'm in the cult. In today's money, that is about 1471. I mean, honestly, I'm still in. Even adjusted for inflation, I'm in. They all still have to fix the houses for free, but in return, receive love and affection, and of course, tons of parties. In a YouTube documentary titled Finding More, the women of Morehouse would have to purchase maid uniforms to keep up perfectly manicured nails to serve Victor and the higher ups. This is also echoed by Mary, another Morehouse
0: resident. Our main function is service. We teach service in the kitchen, living room, and bedroom. People serve Victor totally. He has a chauffeur. Everyone waits on him.
2: He gets anything he wants. A lot of the traditional Morehouse things that I didn't like doing anyway, like being a maid. And see, it used to be when Vic lived there that the maid served him and take care of the powers that be.
3: We had to have just the right uniform and get that, pay for that ourselves, get it made, you know, and there were rules, you know, how you're supposed to manicure your nails and, you know, all this stuff. No one wants to wear it.
2: No one! You only have to be some pretty far in to become a maid, actually. The politics um, at Lafayette, but here we don't do that.
0: that. Those talking head segments are amazing. One of the women was just in a garden holding a giant thing of flowers, saying, the one who was like, no one wants to do that. Like, look, I agree, but also it's so funny that she was just like, it'll be quirkier and give you a better perspective if i'm gardening actively while we're interviewing for this documentary. <laughs> yeah,
1: when i when i when
0: i relive
1: the time that i willingly allowed myself to become some random dude's maid for no reason, i want to i want to just spice it up a little bit. i want to i want to show a little bit of my tood, you know.
0: Yeah, i want to be pruning, you know. I, be, I
1: want people to see another side of me that isn't a uh a, a brainwashed cult victim that just uh, became a maid but yeah that, I mean ser- seriously though I mean I, here's the thing I I I well Andrew did this and I read it in his journals but he talked to he talked to a he talked to several cult Therapists and experts and quote unquote deprogrammers—they don't really like that term. Deprogramming is seen as a as a negative thing in like the in the uh, profession. But I don't, whatever whatever you call it, I talked. They t- he talked to a lot of them, and I think the biggest takeaway that we got from the QAnon series was that like anybody can fall into these things. You aren't like superior and like invulnerable to being taken in by cult like thinking. And push to a situation where you uh, buy into something and allow yourself to be abused and overtaken in this way. Um, And a lot of it has to do with like financial instability and desperation and just being in like a really difficult space in your life, you know, for a variety of reasons. But that all being said, I just I can't imagine. At the point where someone's like, you got to put on this maid uniform. I can't imagine going with that. Like, I can't imagine being like, like, it's just like the sunk cost fallacy of like, I've gone this far. Like, I can't imagine being like, yep,
0: put on the maid uniform. I mean, that's like, that's like not even that hard for these situations. Like, wasn't the Manson cult, the initiation ritual was you had to give Charlie fellatio? Like, that's, you're not even in the cult yet, and he's just whipping it out. Yeah, but that's free love, man. I don't know. Have you seen Charlie Manson? Yeah,
1: no. I mean, I, I wouldn't do that either. I'm not. I'm not arguing with you.
0: That's some 99 cent store free love, bro. I don't <laughs> think I need that. Yeah, that's the
1: type of free where you're like, why is this free? I don't think I want this. I'd ra- I'd rather pay money for it.
0: That free love is laced with aspartame, like for sure.
1: It's like when someone like someone's giving something away for free, and you're like, it's because it's because nobody's buying this, right? You're just trying to you're just trying to get rid of these. This community also did a lot of outreach work at the time. They set up a nonprofit organization called TOTA, Turn On to America, to help collect government funds for housing alcoholics, non-placeable foster children, and parolees. At the same time, they were also charging $45 for about 70 different weekly classes, which today is about $331. So that estimates to about $1.2 million a year in 2022 money. Though today at the Morehouse, they are charging even more for courses, but we will circle back to that in a bit. Barranco had found his honeypot and wasn't just in sexual enlightenment. He was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying, abusive people exploiter. Bronco called his new students Marx, which is an odd name for someone you are evaluating and teaching. It definitely sounds more like someone you're about to swindle. One tactic used in many cults is breaking or, in this group, hexing. When you hex someone, you were to bring them down, and then, when they're ready, you build them back up again at your leisure. The Morehouse also offers courses on hexing. Here is an excerpt from Aquarius Magazine, which offered a description of
0: all of their courses. Hexing is a conceptual game which every human being is playing every time he opens his mouth. But very few people are aware of the game. This weekend course will provide you with the history, technique, structure, and applications of hexing. The extent to which one can control his hexing is the extent to which one controls his universe.
1: The Morehouse still offers this course today, though they've updated their lingo a bit and even have a strange young man trying to explain it to you in a video on their website. This is a really awesome course and one of my
0: personal favorites. Now, when someone's hexed, they're less effective. And when someone's blessed, they're more effective. So these are really powerful tools. This course will give you the opportunity to understand how hexing and blessing work and how to use your power more deliberately. If you examine hexing, you'll discover what's going on, you'll learn to create the effect you're looking for, and you'll have a lot more fun with your communications. When we called this course the blessing course, nobody took it. Now that's a hex. (laughs) Negative charisma. Yeah, I'm not hexed. I am not not hexed. I'm
1: not hexed at all. This class is, well, here, do you want to read this description of the class?
0: Hexing is a conceptual game that people play unconsciously all the time to control and manipulate others' emotional responses. To the extent that you can control hexing, you can control your universe. The course shows you how to hex and bless deliberately in your communications to create desired effects. Through structured games, you can learn the power dynamics of social groups and how best to profit from any position. The history, technique, structure, and application of hexing in various contexts are also examined. Even though its origins are in the ancient ritual practices, it's commonly misunderstood as an obsolete mythology. Hexing is widely practiced in modern society in such areas as advertising, politics, flirtation, medicine, and religion. $525.
1: Yeah, this class costs $525. It's on Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Well, it's from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., which is like that's your, that's your whole weekend. And there's a th- there is a three hour break at least because that's like that's a whole work shift like that's not a fucking class that's a day of work, uh, but at least you get a three hour break I guess from one to three. Um, the a prerequisite for this class is basic sensuality. You got you got to be you got to be sensual to take this class. You got to take the basic sensuality class, uh, which cost four hundred twenty five four hundred seventy five dollars. And this one actually doesn't have the times for some reason. But let's just look at this sensuality video. I'm Sugar. I'm
2: Boris. We're from (laughs) Lockheed Morehouse.
1: Yeah. I was not expecting that energy. (laughs) Sugar and Boris. Sugar and Boris. (laughs) Yes. I was not expecting that. These, These people, like this guy, this other guy. Just a black hole of charisma. I would never take a class from him. I would never listen to him. These guys, I'm ready to fuck. I'm, I'm, I'm down. I want to take a glass with Sugar and Boris right
0: now. I'm Sugar. I'm Boris.
2: We're from Lafayette Morehouse, and we want to talk about enjoying what you have.
0: Yeah, because um, it's an overlooked skill set, you know, in our
2: culture or in our society, Um, we get a lot of messaging that where it's at is an acquisition. Really, gratification comes from the endorsement of what is, comes from the like reveling in what you have. That's how you become gratified. So if, if nothing ever does that for you, then there's no way to get there. However, if you are really gratified by what you've got, Then you go after something you want. That is a really fun game. So it's not about not getting things you want. It's fun to get things you want, but it's kind of meaningless unless you can also enjoy what you've got. If you put those two things together, if you enjoy what you've got and then you reach for more, that's how to have everything you ever wanted out of life.
0: I is it is it is it wrong for me to be like, you know, that kind of makes sense on one level. And then on another level, it's like, please never speak to me again.
1: Yeah, it's like simultaneously very simple. It's just like appreciate what you have. Like like That's not complicated. But also the way that they said it, I was doing that meme of that like woman where she has all the math equations around her head. You know, I was doing that where I was like, if you have what you got and you appreciate what you got Then you can have what you want, but then you got to have what you got. I was like, I was like lost in this like incredibly basic, like, like preschool lesson about like appreciating what you have, (laughs) which I guess you got. That's what you got to do. If you want to, if you want to pedal bullshit, you got to like make something incredibly simple, sound incredibly complicated. And like, you have to, you're the only one that understands it. you have to like teach it to these people. Also, I'm struck by just how, like, kind of normal all those people look and seem. But they're actually, they're just, like, fucking, they're, like, lieutenants in a weird brainwashing organization to, like,
0: fleece people of money. Well, that's what I was curious when they, when Sugar and Boris first popped on the screen. I'm like, are these people really a part of this? Or are they, like, are they, like, actors paid to be here? Like, what, what is, what is their situation?
1: No, Boris, he's all in. He's all in, baby. Sugar's maybe a little bit more apprehensive. Probably because in this cult, like, the women have to be maids. But Boris is all in. Hexing seemed to be working for Bronco. Now with over 200 devout followers, he was now raking in a ton of cash and building quite an empire. Pretty good for a hustler from Oakland. One of the central tenets of the Morehouse is responsible hedonism, which
0: is described as... We at Morehouse believe that every day is Sunday. We believe that we are on earth to have a good time and devote ourselves to pleasure. Is that what Sunday is? Is Sunday the, the pleasure day? Yeah, I don't, that's not Sunday. Sunday is like the fucking Sabbath or whatever. Sunday is the day that you tell yourself you're going to relax and then spent it existentially racked with anxiety because you have to go back to work on Monday. That was
1: Ken Brown, Morehouse Institute president 1971 a man who fundamentally doesn't understand what Sundays are. They say at the Morehouse that they teach service in the kitchen, the living room, and the bedroom. They devote their lives to pleasure and strive for a perfect life which Victor promises them they can obtain by using his programs. Three hours of sex per day may sound exhausting, but to the Morehouse residents, this is a daily practice. See, I t- uh, Boris is fucking on board with that. I, Sugar, she's she's having some misgivings, but Boris... He would, he, could, he would die. He could die in the Morehouse. He'd be fine. Ken Brown started at the Institute as a schoolteacher and within a year and a half became, quote, priest, which is what they call their teachers. He is also the Institute's treasurer and president. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he became a little too comfortable with the journalist telling him that the Institute was, quote, a good scam and, quote, it's up to them whether or not they feel victimized or not. To live near him is an honor. He's the highest being I've ever met.
0: That's actually fascinating, though, that you would like. You can see the grift. You know the grift is happening, but the way it manifests in your psyche isn't. Oh my God, this person is ripping people off. This is wrong. It's to ascribe religious awe to an underhanded mechanism of capitalism.
1: I mean, that's that, have you, that's like fucking Andrew Tate. That's just like what's happening with Andrew Tate right now. There, there's like there was a video floating around on Twitter where it was kind of like – it was showing two different interviews with Andrew Tate, one from 2018 and one from 2020 or 2021, I think. And basically it was talking about how he like totally just rebranded himself and, you know, to try to like skirt controversy. And so he used to run like – he was basically like a, a digital pimp. He just ran like a network of OnlyFans Um where, like, they would get, like, cam models and they would, like, shoot videos or they would just, like, sit on live streams and then, like, he's bragging about it and basically talking about this whole grift that he had set up where he's, like, you know, we had the girls on the camera just pretending like they were typing and then we were just off camera just, like, talking to these guys and these girls were, like, available 24-7 so, you know, you could talk to them anytime because it was me or my brother or this person and we were the ones that were talking to you and he was bragging about, like, like swindling dudes and talking about how like all these poor lonely guys that thought these girls were going to like meet them and all this stuff. And they were just like milking them for cash. And he was bragging about how he made like a million dollars from one of these guys or whatever. And then it cut and it's an intercut with this more recent 2021 interview from his like more recent version of himself where he's like this advocate for like men and like men's, struggles and things like that and he's basically like in an interview talking about how men are exploited and like taken you know in the world like from the porno industry men are like you know milked of their cash and you know tricked into thinking that they're going to get with these women like he's basically describing what he was bragging about but saying that it was like the evils of the world and the horrible like elite group of like porno people or whatever that like exploit men or whatever. And it was like cutting back and forth between them to show that he was just like, literally he's literally just completely changed his entire story and rebranded himself as some kind of like men's rights advocate. Um, and he preaches against the things that he did himself personally in just, just a few years ago. And uh, that was posted. And if you look in the comments, it's all it's like thousands of comments of people being like, eh, it was, you know, it was there it was those guys fault for you know doing it like he was just that was just a good hustle like he you know he they were like and they're like congratulations andrew like you know you did you you made all this money and like it's not your fault you're not a bad person cuz these people like bought into this bullshit or whatever even in the face of showing the hypocrisy everyone's like patting him on the back of like you know you just you're just a hustler like you just you just made you figured out a way to make money it's not your fault that these guys are idiots hustlers university baby which is like bullshit in the first place, but especially whenever it's compa- it's show- like literally shown him saying that it's evil when people do that. And then also he was doing it and then people are still like they don't get it and they're still being like you're a fucking hustler and like they want to be like him. But simultaneously like playing the victim complex that they're, they're like exploited by women and the porn industry and all this stuff. It's just it's insane. It's like a level of mental gymnastics that boggles the mind. Ken isn't the only one who speaks this way of Victor Barranco. Pretty much all of the Morehouse community talks of him like some otherworldly being. Victor himself in the interview with Rolling Stone was quoted saying that the whole thing was simply show business and that what people really buy is the chance to relate to him. In the Morehouse documentary, you do start to get the feeling that there's a little discourse between some of the houses. A few living in the San Francisco Morehouse stated that once they left the Lafayette Morehouse, they could have a much more normal lifestyle. Denise said she couldn't make a living at the Lafayette house, nor could one of the other couples in the documentary. When they were living there, they were only allowed to do more house activities and were only allowed to interact with other people from inside the community. They always had to go places in pairs, even to the grocery store.
3: You know, and there were rules, you know, how you're supposed to manicure your nails and, you know, all this stuff. Even when we left Lafayette and moved here, at that point we sort of we still lived in this house but we sort of stopped living fully living that lifestyle week my husband went and got a, a real job and i started taking care of our son sort of full time
2: there's something about the intensity in other places i've been i spent two weeks once at lafayette and it bugged me
3: <laughs> i spent all my time uh, either at the community or if I left, I left with somebody else from there, and where I went most of the time was to something that was even a part of our lifestyle. If I went, I might I went to collect food for the charity or give away food. Uh, I might have gone to the dump to dump our garbage <laughs> to the Richmond dump. That's an interesting experience, <laughs> and um, or we went to our mark groups, and then you know I was still meeting people from the outside world, but it was people who were there to hear about the or. Participate with the more activities, and uh, you know, I rarely actually did much else for a long time.
2: Um, I was done with Lafayette. Um, I had a good time, but the lifestyle no longer suited my um, needs or my goals. Most people who live there are lifers and they make their living off of courses and houses. And um, as someone who needed to make a living, I had responsibilities within the community which really prohibited, um, it got in the way of me having an outside job and they really did, like sort of frowned upon that anyway. So it didn't make economic sense for me to stay there. I really like living here because it's more of a blend of, Society in general, and some of the the principles and philosophy um, of Morehouse, so it suits me better. What I see is the most important reason.
1: The thing that strikes me is just like, and these are people that are still in this. So this is these aren't even like ex-cult members. They're just people that like moved to a slightly less strict house of the cult or whatever. Like they moved, they they went from Slytherin to Gryffindor, but like the sheer just like waste of like years of your life. Like when, like when you come come out of a cult or whatever and you're just like, man, like I just like I just like wasted five years doing nothing.
0: Like, that's got to suck. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think for some people, that's a real culture shock when they come out. And then for some people, you know, they, they kind of don't even when they get out, they don't get out. You know, they're still kind of living under the the mental strictures of the environment, you know, because they are so thoroughly reprogrammed. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people who
1: get out of who like spent like a large majority of their lives in jail and they get out and they just don't know how to function in a normal society. And then they they, they end up going back to jail because they're just like, I don't I don't know how to live. ...in a regular world. On the Lafayette Morehouse website, there are numerous interviews you can dig through. One such interview is with Dr. Cynthia Barranco, Vic's second wife... ...and a teacher still to this day at the Morehouse. She tells her story of how she found the community and how she met Victor. Again, this is on the
0: official Lafayette Morehouse website. Oh, boy. Cindy was just 16 years old in 1970 when she took her first course, Basic Sensuality. She had moved to California with her friend Diana, also 16 and her mother into one of the more houses in Boyle Heights. Though the night they moved in, Victor pulled his support from the house because he thought the owners weren't treating the tenants well enough. She ended up hooking up with a man named Anthony and started a relationship. She cut herself off from her parents completely. So then had to come up with her own residency funds. We would make deals like being part-time slaves and we were treated in ways I didn't like. Finally, they moved ...to the Venice Morehouse, House, where she started taking more classes. She's still only 17 years old at this point. By this time, she's met Vic quite a few times. She's totally captivated by him. She signs up for the Shazam course that she totally can't afford... ...and will lose her job if she takes it. But she says, "...I went to Shazam because there was something wrong with my crotch... ...and I couldn't tell what it was. When I told Vic about my symptoms, he said I had a yeast infection... And I needed to get done more often by my partner at least three times a day. It was the most humiliating thing that had happened to me in my life up until that point. I didn't want to have my business talked about like that. My crotch being messed up is what motivated me. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. Holy shit! And, And keep in mind, that is
1: on the website. This is being presented as like a good thing? Honestly, I don't know what the moral of this text blurb is. It's just a weird rambling anecdote about, about how she joined the Morehouse. In 1976, Vic had decided it was time to bring his show to the masses and hold a public demonstration, which would become quite notorious. The event was open to the public, but took place in one of the more remote Northern California locations. During the demonstration, one of Vic's bright young students, Diana, would lay on a gynecological table and be, quote, pleasured for three hours. We spoke of Diana briefly before, which was the same girl, Victor's second wife, Cindy's best friend, who also came to the house when she was just 16 years old. She's 22 now, and Victor is 39. As much as one wants to believe in sexual awakenings and self-discovery, he was bringing in lots of very young, very impressionable young women. Here's a quote directly from Diana about the demonstration.
0: No, there wasn't a course written up or anything like that. It was just him showing the coming, having me come. It was for three hours. It's a long time to just lie there and get off. We had cigarette breaks. He told people that he was going to have Brian bring me down in a limousine on the way home. He actually told them at what point I would be done. At one point, I'd stop needing to come down anymore, and I'd be done. So Brian did me for a while, and when I sat up in the limousine, there was the sign of the place where Vic said I would be done. So Brian did me for a while, and when I sat up in the limousine, there was the sign of the place where vic said i would be done does that mean that like he like accurately predicted like the amount like the the mile markers at which she would come like he was like he'll co- she'll come on the corner of 37th and swan
1: i don't know but that's what i'm going with that's that's my head cannon for this is he was just
0: predicting i mean i'm i'm impressed by that if that's if that's true i'm impressed by that i think it's also very interesting that he's like yeah sexual liberation we're gonna like do it for three hours and then like after 15 minutes he's like okay i'm done brian you're tapping in buddy it's you <laughs> i'm bringing in a pinch hitter it's like in in theory this sounds like the greatest fucking thing you could ever think of In actual execution i am exhausted i've had a really rough night i don't really want to do this anymore brian brian come in here he's just like from long island now Yeah, I don't know why. He's from San Francisco. He's a literal, like, mobster from San Francisco. I don't know why that sounds like a dude from Long Island to me. She also recalls how after, quote, the coming, how everyone on the property was so turned
1: on, they would run to every available corner of the property so that they could get off, too. She says it was about the women, but she was sure that everyone was going to have, quote, great sex that night.
0: That's how well Vic knew me and women. He would do me for a while and then he would back off. He was just really good at it. Again, brainwashed cult logic. This guy just can't, he can't do it. He can't maintain three hours because that's an insanely long time. But he's just like svengali everyone into being, yeah, that three minutes, that was like three hours. He's like, listen, listen,
1: here's the thing. I know I said that you had to have, we had to have sex for three hours a day. And I know that like every time I start to do it after like a minute and a half, I just, I'm done. But the thing is, is that I'm actually setting you up for greater pleasure. Like my little minute and a half, that's me, that's my charity. That's me, that's me giving, you know, because I could go the full three hours. If I wanted to be selfish and greedy, I go the full three hours, I give the whole thing myself. But I'm trying to pass it on. I'm trying to you know that that you know that movie from the late 90s with the sixth sense kid, pay it forward, and you know how like that became a trend at like Starbucks when you're in the drive-through and you like pay for the person behind you and then they're supposed to do that to them and it's actually really annoying for the workers because they get confused about like how to attribute the tickets and stuff and they tell people to not do that. And it's kind of dumb anyway, because it's like you're just paying for somebody else's instead of your own. So it doesn't really change anything. It's not really actually charity or nice. It's just a weird gimmick. I'm doing that. I'm paying forward to the next guy who's going to give the pleasure. Because I am selfless and I care about people. That's why I can only last for 30 seconds. Good for you, Vic. Good for you, man. She also refers to her past and before she
0: met Victor and how she had troubles with her orgasms. The reason I kept thinking I wasn't coming was because I had the idea of what it was supposed to look like, and it didn't look like that. So Vic just wore those viewpoints down little by little, I had it ingrained in me very heavily. So it took a while. I didn't just get off right away because it was Vic doing me. It was my mind that he had to change. I think that he saw that it was a process and that some people are going to hold on to longer than others. I think that Susie had to go through the same thing to figure it out. And I think he figured it out with her. He was so good with women, he could feel them. I think he could feel that they were getting off, and it wasn't like they were admitting it right away. He and Susie didn't have enough reality between them. So they wanted to see what it looked like with other people. And with their exploratory process, it came down to bringing somebody else through. So uh, there's a lot of sad stuff in there. But also, it man, that's just... There's a lot of sad stuff in there. Um, Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean,
1: number one,
0: it's like every time we ever do these cult episodes, it's just like waiting
1: for the other shoe to drop of like, when's this going to be about how this dude is just trying to get sex from possibly underage women? That's that's the one thing that comes to mind because because there was a little bit of time. I mean, there was the whole like have three hours of sex Thing, But in most of this discussion so far, it seemed like this wasn't going in like a sex way, but I was like, when's it when's it going to happen? And it's like, oh, like, you know, public exhibitionist style uh, fucking Howard Stern, you know, women sitting on the Sibian style, just public sex acts. Like what? What is this isn't this isn't like a spiritual thing. This is just like fucking in front of people. But also, yes, it's like somebody going out of their way to like rationalize that it's like okay that he was like fucking other women that weren't his wife and also like trying to rational like yeah what do do you think about it
0: I think in a different context the idea that sexuality is more of a mental thing than just physical stimulation is interesting and I think that that's a vista of experience that uh, is worthy of discussion and analysis and I think that that's something that a lot of people experience however in this context it just sounds like this person's fucking brainwashed and was sexually manipulated a hundred percent yeah yeah which yeah which is
1: just which is just sad because you know you have clearly a, a woman who's describing that she has like these sexual hang-ups or frustrations or mental blocks or what I, whatever you call that I, I don't know what the proper terminology is but this idea that she like wasn't was unable to or it was difficult for her to have an orgasm and she apparently struggled with this for a long time. Or maybe she didn't. I don't know how old this girl was. Maybe she was 15, and this is like disgusting. Um, it didn't it didn't specify how old she was. Uh, but then like to have that manipulated and exploited by a dude who just like is a fucking pervert who just wants to like women in public and just make and like put it under the auspices of. I'm, I'm like, giving you, like, sexual therapy to overcome your issues. That's just really fucked up. Because that's not, like, and not, not that this is good. Not that it's ever good to, like, uh, bring, like, these young women into these cults, these, like, sex cults and, like, brainwash them and all this stuff. But, like, at least, like, in a lot of cult situations, it's, like, people who are seeking, like, you know, the Dom and Her cult. It was a lot of people who were just, like, seeking out weird, unique experiences, you know? It was just, like, clearly affluent people who were just bored with their lives and just, like, wanted to do something weird and unique. And then I still don't think it's right or good to manipulate them into coming into a cult or whatever. But it's at least it's, like, oh, it's just, like, some super bored, rich person who just, like, wants to do weird shit and, like, it's unfortunate that they fell into this cult but at the certain at a, a, to a certain degree it's like maybe you should do a little bit more intellectual due diligence. But this is just like some young person who's just like struggling with some like trauma and then is like just manipulated into thinking that she's being helped by
0: some fucking meatball. Yeah, by Ron Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah, the spiritual guru that is Ron fucking Jeremy. Yeah, it's 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 sad. But also
1: speaking of uh speaking of Uh, sexuality uh, of the mind. Uh, A a friend of the podcast, uh, Kirk Pinchon, who you might know as Dad Beats. He makes some of the music for the show.
0: Kirk Pinchon, which by the way, as a total side note. Oh my God, you were getting a side note in a side note? Come on, one star, one star. Just spit out the fucking fact. What are you trying to say about Kirk?
1: Side note, people were talking about uh, Thomas Pinchon in the Facebook group a couple days ago. And uh, Kirk is actually Thomas Pinchon's cousin. Uh, but uh, he told me this story years ago that he has a friend who can just lay down and close his eyes and jizz. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That is not where I thought that was going. (laughs) That is... (laughs) That is insane. Not only is that insane to... That, that can could happen but it's just insane that you would bring that up that's just so <laughs> you were talk- talking about
1: like the sexuality of the mind and it being a mental thing and i and he he told me that he his friend said that he could just like he could just lay down and just make it happen without touching himself
0: like no erection or anything he just sits there and it just fucking comes we got to introduce him to the cleps bro yeah <laughs> He's the
1: secret weapon.
0: God, Mr. and Mrs. Klepp. I think they found their new uh, their new boy toy. Come on, command. You thought crying on command was an impressive skill, dude. That's like uh, that's some fucking the shadow shit. You know, you go to some Shaolin temple or Tibetan temple, learn the secrets of the mind, come back. You don't. You don't fight. You know, rum runners in 1920 with the ability to turn invisible. You just lay down and then jizz. <laughs> What cum lurks in
1: the dicks of men? The shadow knows.
0: (laughs) This is, that is a joke aimed at precisely zero people other than me. (laughs) I love the shadow, obviously, but that joke is so funny to me. (laughs) It's so stupid. Hey, look at that. Look at that! Spandrew is holding a definitely not bootleg shadow here. That did I? I did I get you that or did I? I think there was some kind of animal that came into our garage when we were gone. Because when I got
1: back, there was like some stuff on my desk that was kind of like knocked over, and this shadow was sitting on my desk, and he had both of his guns, and he had his arms up like this, and his cape on. But when I got back, he was he was knocked over, and I don't know where the I don't know where the gun or the cape are. They're like gone. I think there was like, an, there was like a, an animal in here, like a rat or something. It was just me. I got in there and just stole the cape. I was like, I need this. I, need, I lost mine. And then you knocked a few other things over. You're like, better make it look like an animal.
0: Who knows what cum lurks in the dicks of men.
1: <laughs> Diana is still with the Morehouse community to this very day, teaching her own classes in, quote, sensuality and expansion of sexual potential qualification and certification. From 1977 to 1997, Lafayette Morehouse operated Moore University, a post-secondary school that offers B.A.s and M.A.s in humanities as well as Ph.D.s in sensuality and lifestyles. Dang, I went the the wrong
0: way. I should have gotten a Ph.D. in sensuality. Dude, I'm trying to get a Ph.D. in lifestyles. Yeah, what what even is that? Can I get a Ph.D. in lifestyles of the rich and the famous? Yeah, just that song,
1: just a Ph.D. in that specific song. You break down just a whole world philosophy of surrounding the lyrics to, to that song by Good Charlotte. While the school was authorized by the state of California to give out these degrees, that changed in 1989 when the California Bureau for Privacy, Post-Secondary, and Vocational Education staged a crackdown on non-accredited schools. This quickly led to Morehouse shutting down their degree program. A lot of these people that were teaching these courses were not academics of any kind and had just been trained by Vic or other students that had passed this, quote, certification. But man, what th- that, those were the th- those were the days before they like because right like now, like I mean, there are like bullshit schools still, but like the accreditation system is like pretty strict and it's very well advertised if a school is accredited or not. So you kind of know if you're going to a real school where the g- degree means something or if you're going to some weird bullshit Phoenix University th- shit uh, or University of Phoenix or whatever it is. Um, that's like not fully legit. But like back in the day before they cracked down on that, like you could just like start a school and just be like, we're get, we're, we're giving PhDs. You t- take a three month course on boners and you can
0: have a PhD. I mean, maybe that's how that guy learned how to just come on command. Yeah, he went to the Morehouse University and took coming on command 101 that's what that's what the basics of sensuality and sexuality is it's learning hands-free self-determination aka
1: jizzing your pants victor Bronco died at 68 years old in 2002 there was a small obituary written for him in the honolulu star bulletin there were no services posted the lafayette morehouse continued on after bronco's death and is still operating today Many other branches of the houses split off to form their own communities as well. Class prices range from $425 to $8,500. What are the $8,500 classes? That's, 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 got, that's got to be the coming on command class.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't get that for $425. That's the like hands-free making somebody else jizz their pants. Psychic labial manipulation is the
1: class. $8,500, bitch. Psychic labial manipulation. So essentially, you know this this kind of weird cult that's about like the principles. Of, it's supposed to be about the principles of free love and enjoyment. It's it's not un it's not dissimilar to Damanhur her in that there wasn't really anything totally off like Am Shinrikyo level awful about it where people were like murdered or anything like that. But it's. Almost kind of creepier in a way that an organization like this, that is like ostensibly about free love, but it's really about built around like the subservience of women, has just like existed and just it's been around for 50 years and it's just still like a thing. This is we're not talking about some cult that was like around in the 70s and then like disbanded because some you know police raid in the 80s or something like that. Like, this is just a currently functioning organization. That's like a modern day handmaid's tale, essentially. Um, but I, I think the the more striking thing to me about it is the way that it's built off of this idea of exploiting basically homeless people. The, 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 the whole the honeypot of the Morehouse is offering these like houses where you can it's like a homeless shelter where you can go live. And it's like it's better than a homeless shelter from a from an amenity standpoint because it has more dignity than being living in a homeless shelter because it's not a homeless shelter. It's not branded as a place to go live if you're homeless. It's like a place it's, – it's branded as like a community to go live in if you're like a hippie person. But it's really a homeless shelter. And then there's, there's better amenities because it's more of like a – it's basically more like an apartment building like a communal living apartment building, not like a homeless shelter where you kind of just like hang out in stalls and sleep on cots and things like that. So it's all much more enticing than the idea of having to go and like stay at a homeless shelter. And then also there's the community aspect of it. And then they basically from there take you and turn you into like a free worker, which is, I think that's the insidious, the really insidious part about it to me is it's essentially like, Farming young homeless people and turning them into wage
0: slaves. But then it gets even weirder, right? Because it's now it's like, okay, wage slave. But then at a certain point, it transitions into, and now you pay me to gain knowledge of hexing and sensuality.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like it's just like it's a pipeline to turn homeless people into workers and
0: also. like a profit, like a profit source. Customers for a weird MLM. Yeah, the ultimate MLM. Except it's not even really like, it's not even really a multi-level. It's just one level. It's just a one-level marketing campaign.
1: Give me money for to, to go to these classes where we just, where Sugar and Boris just riff. Just like Second City Rejects riffing. And then just like have sex three hours a day, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think... My favorite part of this is still just uh, Victor's tracksuits. Like those things are amazing, man.
1: I mean, everything I just all everything I just said. Aside, I'm I'm joining those 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 tracksuits,
0: dude. Let's just show up in matching tracksuits. On that note, I'm Dave Baker. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to uh, find me on the internet, you can do so at heydavebaker.com, or you can get my comics like uh, fucking everyone is Tulip Halloween Boy uh, Night Hunters. And um, if you want to pre-order some stuff, you can pre-order my new book, Mary Tyler Morehawk, out from Top Shelf, February 13th, 2024, which is open for pre-orders right now on both Golden Apple's website, goldenapplecomics.com, or Halloween, or uh, I almost said a Halloween, boy, or Amazon. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's going to be almost a 300-page book, and uh, it's comics, prose, time travel, end of the world shenanigans. Pretty excited about it. Mary Tyler Moorhawk. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? And
1: nobody has sex for three hours to try to fix their crotch issues first and foremost. That's that's the most important detail about the book. Um, you can find me living it up at the Lafayette Morehouse. Just fucking going to town on some yeast infections.
0: God, <laughs> <Just> Jesus, <Christ. laughs>
1: Jesus. Oh, that's that's a horrible, disgusting image. Uh, you can't find me on social media because I don't use social media, but if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can go to his website, DAPriceWrites.com and get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also follow us on social media, go to Facebook, search for Deep Cuts Podcast or join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show and make memes. You can join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Deep Cuts Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes and talk about other stuff. Uh, you, ca- you can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod you can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse you can go to our website DeepCutsPod.com and get some merch some cool shirts and hats and t-shirts shirts and t-shirts those are different things of course Uh, with Deep Cuts graphics on them and uh, you can join the Mystery Treehouse uh, the, the, the Mystery Treehouse cult where it's basically just like you just do our chores our house is like really messy right now we just need someone to like do the dishes
0: Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.
1: The incidental music for this episode was created by D Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. This episode of Deep Cuts was written by special guest writer Jessica Balboni. If you'd be interested in writing an episode of the show, please email andrew at boygeniusmedia.com.